Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Welcome to our second ESMO 2021 special. As with last week's episode, we're focused on early bird practice changing data. We cover GU, breast and GI cancers, workforce issues and much more. So join us to digest the key ESMO updates with Eva Segaloff, Craig Underhill and Hans Prennan. We hope you have a few laughs too. As ever, you'll find links to all of the papers, bios and Twitter handles in the notes on our website. For regular news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Bevin and this is the Oncology Podcast. Bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. We are at ESMO, practice changing, early bird, but not as early as the other episode that's already been out there for a few days. Bonjour and welcome, Hans. Bonjour, Eva. Comment ça va? Muy bien. Oh, no, that's Spanish. Go on, Craig. You speak French. Come on. Rebonjour, Eva and Hans. So it's hello again. Rebonjour. Fantastic. Now, we are so snappy. We are, have been studying day and night. We've been listening to ESMO as well as doing our regular work, and we are bringing you some more practice-changing highlights. So we might start this time with you, Craig. Now, Craig, GU, start again at ESMO. They had ASCO. They've got ESMO. It's, it's the place to be, huh? Yeah, quite interesting. So, I mean, there's been a lot of clinical trials in various tumours within GU and also various stages, so early stage, you know, late neoadjuvant. So, yeah, there there was a couple of interesting things, potentially practice changing or game changes. Good. Okay. Fill us in. So, the first one was Peace One, Peace Man. So, this is a study using abiraterone up front in castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. So the standard of care there now is giving some docetaxel with androgen deprivation therapy. So this was a two-by-two factorial design where they looked at the additional benefit of radiotherapy or adding abiraterone, acetate, and prednisolone. And they basically found that the three drugs up front, ADT, docetaxel, and abiraterone, for two years led to a progression-free survival and overall survival benefit. So here's a novel concept, Eva, an adjuvant study showing an overall survival benefit. Wow. Gee, (laughs) can't argue with that. I know. So, you know, and the benefits are quite big. So in essence, it was an additional two and a half years of benefit. So, Craig, what was the actual survival? Do you have the figures? So the actual overall survival was the hazard ratio 0.83, so just reached significance, but it was 4.7 years versus 5.7 years. So it's an additional year survival. So these are not unsubstantial benefits and it's not a progression-free survival but an overall survival. And we've talked before about permitted crossovers and good crossovers. And so 84% of the men crossed over to receive abiraterone subsequently on progression. And despite that, it still showed a survival benefit. So this actually may be a real effect. One of the issues with this drug, of course, is cost. I noticed in one of the discussion that it's coming off patent in 2022. 
So the price will probably come down substantially and it may be something that people will consider as a standard of care. So currently in most jurisdictions, it's available for castrate-resistant disease, not in this situation of using it upfront when the disease is sensitive. Mm. Coming off patents, a huge issue, isn't it? Making it available across the world, you know, if a generic is made or the company makes it for a lower price. Fantastic. And then the other paper in the same disease in prostate cancer, this time in the non-metastatic setting. So this is from Stampede. So Stampede, as you know, has been studied going for several years and as the standard of care change, they add new investigational arms. It's a platform trial. Fantastic. Just like Focus 4. But these platform trials are amazing, aren't they? Really the future. Adaptive designs, add arms, close arms that aren't successful and keep going. Yeah, and I reckon we need to get into that in Australia, maybe not in this disease, but surely we need some kind of studies like that in common cancers in Australia. Do you know of any? I know some we're doing in collaboration. Obviously, pharma doesn't want to do platform trials. So by definition, they're almost always academic and they're very expensive. But you could say most is a platform trial, a sort of molecularly based platform trial. Yeah, okay. Well, that's adaptive, isn't it? It is adaptive. All right. So this study stampede. So we know that in non-metastatic but high-risk prostate cancer, which is approximately 20% of men. So these are locally advanced but not metastatic. That accounts for about 20% of prostate cancer. We know that giving them androgen deprivation for two or three years and combining with local radiotherapy improves life expectancy. Docetaxel's been tried before. It works as an adjuvant treatment when there's bulkier metastatic disease. It has a relapse-free survival, but not overall survival in this setting when the disease is just localised. So this study that added abiraterone to the standard therapy of androgen deprivation and radiotherapy, and they found that at two years, the metastasis-free survival had improved from 69 to 82%. And again, there was actually an overall survival advantage in an adjuvant study that went from 77 to 86%. And improvement in prostate cancer-specific survival also went up from 85 to 93%. The discussion called on this, this is probably, again, in the setting of coming off patent and becoming more affordable, this is something that may become the standard of care. So potentially two practice changes, one in the castrate-sensitive space and one in the locally advanced space. I presume they didn't do PSMA PET to detect metastatic disease. Will that change these sorts of findings? Yeah, so no, they didn't. And so that's really become in widespread use in Australia. We've talked about that before. So this setting of a raised PSA, high-risk patients and M0 disease is becoming probably less common. So what we tend to find is the PSA is going up. We do find uh, low-volume METs on PSMA scans. Yep. So when do you think the next generation of studies using PSMA as a response evaluation or, or at least to screen for metastatic disease will come through? Great question, and I think hopefully ends up another cooperative groups are looking at that. 
very question in the next generation of trials. Again, the PSMA is not available everywhere, but you know it's available in certainly in Australian metropolitan institutions. Many regional institutions have it now, but they're sometimes unfunded. There's an access issue still. Yeah. Well, it looks like hormones are doing well in prostate cancer. So can I flick you over to some breast cancer data? Please do. So for many years, there's been an ongoing debate about the optimal duration of adjuvant endocrine therapy. I'll give you a little potted history. So MA7 was the landmark trial showing extended therapy with five years of letrozole following five years of tamoxifen significantly increased disease-free survival. There have been many trials, but four pivotal randomized trials, the ATAC, the ITA, the IES, and big 198, which compared tamoxifen for five years with aromatase inhibitors, either each drug for five years or an early switch strategy and either tamoxifen first or AI or five years of upfront AI. And they all showed that you need to have the aromatase inhibitor in there in the first five years instead of just having five years of tamoxifen, if you're only giving five years of therapy. Now, in July 2021, the ABCSG 16 Celsius study updated their results in New England Journal. Again, postmenopausal women, hormone receptor positive breast cancer, already having had five years of endocrine therapy, whatever it was, and these patients either had the aromatase inhibitor anastrozole for an additional two years or an additional five years. So this is looking at total duration of endocrine therapy. Primary endpoint was disease-free survival, interestingly, and they found actually that two years was as good as five years and the risk of bone fracture was much higher with five years of uh, extended therapy. So here at ESMO, concurrent with a publication in Lancet Oncology, the Italian Phase three GYM4 trial was presented. And at the time this trial was starting, we didn't know how to extend therapy once you'd incorporated an AI into your first five years. So what this trial did was compare five years of letrozole versus two to three years of letrozole in postmenopausal women who already had two to three years of tamoxifen. They enrolled approximately a 1,000 patients per arm, so two to three years or five years on top of the already five years of treatment. And what they found at 12 years was the invasive disease-free survival rates were 62 in the control and 67 with the extended letrozole. So that was statistically significant, absolute improvement, 5% relative risk reduction, 22%. So it begs the question of now us having different data, one major trial saying five years, one saying 
two years. The interesting thing I found was that they only reported around two or three percent of arthralgia in the various arms and less than one percent of myalgia. That's grade three and four. But these are effects that really concern women and inhibit them doing their daily life, but aren't CTCAE grade three or four. So quality of life is really important here. So the author actually of the trial who presented said, if you put in context with other trials, seven or eight years total duration is probably optimal trading off efficacy and toxicity. But of course, it depends on your risk in the first place. And a lot of these women had pretty low risk disease. So I hope you're not as confused as you were before I started this section. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions to clarify. Go ahead. So were these all no positive or no positive and no negative? And if there was a heterogeneity, was there a difference in the populations? Yes, Craig, there were women with stage one to three, all operable breast cancer in this study. And a lot of data presented. In the paper, if you look at the forest plot, the statistically significant group was the node negative and the node positive or even node unknown. There are a small number. Those had wide confidence intervals for the unknown, small confidence intervals for the node positive, which were about 400 and 28 patients, and those two groups were not statistically significant. And just to clarify, they all got five years of tamoxifen, and then it was a randomization between the two or three years and five years of the AI. They had all received adjuvant tamoxifen for at least two years, but no longer than three years and three months. So they would have had the switch policy, either AI first and then TAM or TAM first and then AI, and then went on this study randomizing between two to three years versus five years for the extension. So it's interesting that we're still sort of debating all this and it's really gets a bit complicated. But again, referring back to the St. Gallen consensus statement from 2021 that we covered recently, you know, there seems to be, there was a real vogue up until this year that more and more women were getting 10 years of adjuvant, but there seems to have been a consensus back to really stratifying according to the nodal status. And so it's only the no positive or the really high risk no negatives that you consider more than five years. So it's interesting how it waxes and wanes. And, and the absolute benefits, I think, are tiny. So you're sort of arguing about probably quite small benefit. Well, you've got such a mixture of prognoses of people who are enrolled in these trials. This data and the New England Gantt ABCSG paper will bring back from 10 years to around seven to eight years for most patients. Yeah. And also reflects too, it's about having those one-on-one conversations and you can have quite long, (laughs) complex conversations and women will often weigh it up. And their quality of life definitely comes into it. So some of them just struggle and want to stop. You know, it's not something you necessarily need to decide up front. You can see how how patients are going and a lot can happen in the lifetime of of someone on, on hormone therapy. So I think you have the discussion, you pick your aim, but it can be modified as you go. 
and you preface things with like they'll ask, you know, how long do I need to be on this? Well, it's like, well, the current state of knowledge is this, but, you know, it may change as we get more data. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, bone health with the aromatase inhibitors for a long time is of major concern. So Hans, you really paid so much attention at ESMO this year. I'm really proud of you. You've even got some more practice changing stuff for us. So hit the ground. Yes, indeed. And I focused this year on normally I was going to attend usually the upper GI, but apparently there is a bit of novelties in the lower GI. So I think it's very interesting. And the first one I selected is the Crystal One study. As you know, there's a lot of rumor these days about the Keras G12C. We know all the data of Sotorasip, it's the Amgen drug, especially in uh, lung, but also there's activity in in GI, such as colon or pancreatic cancer. But the CRYSTAL-1 is actually a study with adagrasip, also a difficult name. And as you know, in colon cancer, it might not be sufficient to block the Keras G12C alone. So that's why there is already studies ongoing combining it with anti-GFR. And this study, the CRYSTAL-1, gave adagrasib as monotherapy or combined with cetuximab in patients with colon cancer with the Kira's G12C. And I should point out it's crystal with a K because, of course, we had the original crystal study. Ah, yeah, indeed. So it's crystal with K, indeed. So as you know, it occurs in about 3-4% of colon cancer, so not that frequent in colon as it is in lung, but still it's a number of patients. And this was a phase 1-2 study where 46 patients received monotherapy and 32 patients received a combo. So what did we see? In the monotherapy, there was a response rate of about 22% and the median PFS of 5.6 months. So there's certainly some activity there. And if you want to compare with Sotorasip, there the response was around 12%, but I think the numbers are in the same range. So we cannot say that one drug is better than another one, for example. In the combo, you saw a response rate of 43%. So the combo seems better than monotherapy. And this is also what we see in the combination study with Sotorasip and anti-GFR. So I think... I can conclude that there is very promising clinical activity in heavily pretreated patients. And as you know, there's a phase three in second line ongoing with the combination. So I think it will be a matter of speed depending which drug will come first to the market. But I'm 100% sure that there will be soon or maybe in one or two years a drug available that can inhibit Keras G12C in colon cancer. Yes, we've got that study about to open at our centre. So, again, we hope to get lots of referrals for these rare molecular subtypes. Yeah, especially in colon, you really have to actively look for it. We've already got a study open at our centre for this subgroup. So you can feel free to refer any patients or maybe we need to do a tally trial. All right. So, Craig, tell Hans to focus a bit. Sure. Hans, you're on a roll, but just focus. What else have you got? Actually, <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> I got something on Focus 4. And I don't know if you remember what the Focus 4 study was, but it's it's actually a study, a very large study in the UK, 
It's a molecularly stratified trial program. So they look at the molecular alteration and then they test novel combinations, novel drugs. So what they presented now was one part of the Focus 4 where they gave inhibition of V1 in colon cancer patients with P53 and RAS mutants. Okay, I will try to explain very briefly what this is and what it means, this V1, because V sounds a bit bizarre to me. But the hypothesis is that aberrations in the DNA replication are seen in colon cancer, especially in the patients with both RAS mutations and P53 mutations. And then the idea is that this will sensitize tumors to V1 inhibition. So goal is actually, let's say, to target the DNA damage repair pathway with this V inhibitor. And from the 718 patients that were registered in the Focus 4, there were 69 patients randomized. What we saw was that there was a randomization between and it's always difficult names, so it's adavosertib, so adavosertib versus active monitoring. And what they saw was that there's an improvement in PFS, to me not spectacular, 3.6 versus 1.8, so it's actually doubling, but it's comparing with active monitoring. But there seems to be some activity, but there was no difference in overall survival and maybe more benefit in left-sided in comparison with right-sided tumors. So I think there is some activity, but future clinical development is warranted, they, they claim, for adavosertib. But I think we have to better understand why this drug is maybe doing something and maybe there is even a subgroup where it's working better than another one. But I think it's especially it's hypothesis generating, as we would say. Yes, it's interesting. Do you know what they gave all the people on focus for who didn't have a molecular target? Cape Cytobin? They went into the aspirin arm as the novel oh, drug. Yeah. Yay, oh, aspirin. Okay. <laughs> but uh, look, it's interesting because we're all used to ignoring P53 when we get our molecular profile because we don't have anything to target it at the moment. But this may be something that draws our attention and we had another arm of Focus 4 just published recently in JCO looking at breaks in treatment for people with metastatic colorectal cancer, really showing no detriment to treatment breaks. So a lot of data coming from the different arms of Focus 4. I think A, B, C, D, E, F, G, I think they were down to about J or K when I, when I looked last. Indeed. So, thank you, hands. Practice changing hands. Now, good luck getting your pin out of your hand, hands. Indeed. So, tomorrow my pins will be removed. I think, again, will be very painful, but I will survive. Don't worry. You can go back on the opiates that you loved so much yeah. last time. <laughs> All righty. Great. Okay, let me take you now to... Mona Lisa 2 study. Now, we've seen this before. We had lots of discussion after San Antonio last year about this, but this was further data now at a median for the intervention arm of ribocyclib plus letrozole as compared to placebo plus letrozole in this first-line metastatic hormone-positive HER2-negative group. 
Now, remember the curves were neck and neck, and they only started separating at 24 months. Now, that's got a lot of implications when we think about future trial design and also this rush to present data very early. But we now have a median of 6.3 years. So like prostate cancer, lovely to talk years. There's 5.3 years, hazard ratio 0.76, highly statistically significant standard treatment now to have a CD4-6 inhibitor with a AI as standard first-line therapy. Any more breast cancer game changes? Look, there was. There was actually quite a lot. So I need to mention Keynote 355 presented by Hope Rugo. This is first-line Pembro plus chemo versus placebo plus chemo in metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And basically the addition of Pembro to chemo significantly improved overall survival in patients with a CPS of 10 or more to 23 versus 16.1 months, hazard ratio 0.73, highly statistically significant. That's very similar to what we saw in Passion 130. We saw an improved PFS in the patients with CPS of more than one, but that did not translate into an overall survival. And we still don't have any benefit in patients with CPS score of less than one. Interestingly, this trial was stratified by chemo backbone because that's been a real issue in using IO and triple negative breast cancer with some of the Atezo studies being negative in Passion 131, Packley and Atezo. And here, Taxane appeared to perform better than the Gem Carbo doublet. So again, a really nuanced area. I think you've really got to be across these studies if you are treating breast cancer and really, you know, there's conflicting data from different studies, but this will certainly, I think, bring Pembro as standard into first-line triple negative breast cancer, CPS score greater than 10, which causes a problem for us in Australia because we don't have, well, all around the world, we don't have standardization, TPS, CPS. It's The pathologists are really struggling, I think, to keep up with this data, certainly because of lack of funding for doing this scoring we tried to get her to on a non-breast cancer, non-gastric cancer patient the other day. You know, the poor pathologists say no funding. You're asking for this all the time. Now we want CPS scores. It's really a difficult issue if we can't have access to the immunohistochemistry, let alone the molecular path. So speaking of a teaser, Luzumab. We were. I have one for a teaser. Back to prostate cancer. So this is probably not yet a game changer, but it's of night. So just a quick bite. So this was interesting because we're always looking for new treatments in castrate refractory prostate cancer. And this was a study in men who were castrate refractory, metastatic disease, that had enzalutamide or abiraterone acetate and could have had docetaxel with castrate-sensitive disease as an adjuvant, but not in the metastatic castrate refractory setting. This is a combo of atezolizumab and carbazantinib. 
So, you know, TESO, we don't think about IO in prostate cancer. The trials have been disappointing. It seems to be immunologically cold tumour. So I read an X phrase that said that carbazantinib may be immunologically permissive. So it allows, must create some inflammation and allows some interaction with the prostate cancer potentially and the pd one inhibitor. And so it was really quite interesting. In, this is in a phase 1B from COSMIC 21, cohort 6, and basically had an interesting overall response rate. The disease control rate was 88% assessed by the investigator, 84% by independent assessment. And so a little bit of excitement, not yet game changer, but it fits with we're seeing this combination of a TKI or a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor and PD-1 or PD-1 inhibitor across different tumours seems to be an interesting combination. So that's the holy grail, these immunopermissive therapies. Exactly. Learn something new. There's a game-changing phrase. Use that in your MDT and you'll impress people. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I've got another PEMBRO study. I like this one. It was actually looking at neoadjuvant PEMBRO in locally advanced or localised solid tumours that had mismatch repair deficiency. So there were only 15 patients. 10 had colon cancer, 2 had rectal cancer, 2 had pancreas cancer, and 1 endometrial. All the patients went to surgery. They had a PATH CR of 69%. How? 69. Wow. So neoadjuvant Pembro, they all have mismatch repair deficiency and radiographic response rate of 75%. Actually, when I say they all went to surgery, actually 11% of them didn't. They had non-operative management with no progression to date. And so what they're saying for these luminal mismatch repair deficient cancers is we may be on the track to organ preservation using neoadjuvant IO. And we've seen this actually in colon previously in some of the neoadjuvant studies that had a few MSI high cancers. But the other thing is that they showed very elegant use of ctDNA to predict the response. So we may have a biomarker as well. I think there's huge future in this. Yeah, potential game changer. So what would you expect from chemo? Forget about mismatch repair gene deficient, but just in general, in what would you expect as the pathological CR neoadjuvant? Well, for standard concurrent chemo RT for rectal cancers, about 18% path CR. We don't usually give neoadjuvant chemo for colon cancer, although, of course, we've got data in that space, and I, I love that idea. And then pancreas cancer, well, two patients, neoadjuvant Pembro, hard to say, but they've got mismatch repair deficiency. But usually we don't see any path CRs after neoadjuvant chemo or chemo radiation for pancreas cancer and endometrial cancer, I think, rarely gets neoadjuvant therapy. So the main group we would compare to then is rectal cancer and PATH-CR, even in the newer TNT studies, you're you're only looking at about a 25% max PATH-CR. Okay. So I've got 
a neoadjuvant study. All right, match your one for one. Bladder cancer. So this was a study both in the neoadjuvant and the adjuvant setting. Uh, there was two parts of the trial. This is a chemo study. Wow, game changing. So people have gravitated to gemcitabine cisplatin as a neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatment. This was a study comparing that to dose-dense MVAC, so it's like back to the future. You know, as a trainee in the last century, we were giving MVAC. This is dose-dense MVAC with growth factor support and actually showed a significant benefit in the neoadjuvant setting to the dose-dense and didn't quite meet significance in the perioperative or adjuvant setting, but probably one could say the overall survival was significant in neoadjuvant and just significant in perioperative hazard ratios 0.66 and 0.74. So we could probably say that dose-dense MVAC patients are fit to have it should be the standard chemotherapy that we use for neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatment in bladder cancer. Goodbye, gemcitabine cisplatin, which is easier to deliver but probably not as effective. What about IO there, though? I think there's studies in progress, but this is just in the chemo backbone. Now probably should be dosed in Zimbac, and some centres have used that, and it's been a little bit not controversial, but not everyone's embraced it because it is harder to deliver. But there you go. There's a randomised phase three study done in Europe that suggests that it's better. One of the patients I remember from when I was a registrar, so that's a very long time ago. Can you still remember that? I can. I remember this woman who was a pharmacist came into ED and she had decided not to take her folinic acid rescue after the MVAC because she wanted it to be more effective. And I was working for Derek Ragavan at the time. And I can remember, you know, this woman was just in dire straits. So it wasn't that she didn't understand the need for the folinic acid, she showed that mindset of people just want the treatment to work so much that she did something that actually was very counterproductive. Is she still alive? Will she listen to this and be outed? It was a very long time ago. She may be still alive. I hope she's still alive. So, Eva, I've got one more and it's protege. Oh, surely you mean Pradesh. No, it's protege. It's a French study, so I'm sure it's protege. Pradesh <laughs> 24. No, that I revert to Spanish. Cut so that out. Yeah, that's <laughs> No, we're not cutting it out. So it's an adjuvant study in resected pancreas cancer, modified fulfurinox versus gemcitabine. I'm not sure that gemcitabine is an adequate comparator. It was at the time. This is a landmark study, yep. So five-year survival, 31% versus 21%, and median survival without metastasis, 29 versus 17. So potential game changer, do you think fulfurinox is the standard of care in adjuvant following resection of pancreas cancer? I think this trial made it one of the two standards of care when it when it came out, and this is updated, so longer-term survival. It's interesting, though, Craig, they had a 32% five-year survival in the gem cytobine. Now, that's way more than what we see. 
it's way more than what we see even with Gem Kate, which is, of course, is the other proven beneficial adjuvant therapy, although uh, fairly toxic after a Whipple's. So what does that mean? It means they're really a highly selected cohort. If you're going to get a third of patients surviving with adjuvant gem. And also interesting in this study, the randomization was post surgery. So you already had survived your operation when we're fit enough to be contemplating oh, and be enough. randomized into what sort of treatment and fit enough to have fulfurinox. So it was a good design in terms of if you randomize people to an adjuvant study at the start of their treatment, neoadjuvant treatment, or prior to their surgery, you have so many who don't get through, but it does make the group very self-selected. Is there a head-to-head study read out or underway comparing in Fulfurinox and Gemcape in pancreas? I'll take that on notice. Not that I know about. Okay, you've got homework either. Homework. You need to wrap the answer. <laughs> most people don't like giving gem cape and modified fulfurinox is, is we've we've learned how to do it. We're doing it in colon. Don't try and flesh it out. You don't know. You've got homework. Homework. All right. Look, don't hassle me because I might resign and I'm going to tell you I'm talking about the third ESMO Resilience Task Force survey. And as you know, the ESMO workforce put out a survey initially at the start of COVID around the end of April 2020, and they did a follow-up in July 2020, and then they now did a survey in February 2021. So that was before the third, fourth or fifth wave, whatever country you're in and where you are up to. So, you know, I think if they did another survey, there would be even more findings in the same direction. So what they found was with this third survey was there was a significant decline in well-being over time. 45% of medical oncologists reported feeling increasingly overwhelmed with their workload. That compares to 29% in the first survey. 59% reported being unable to take their allocated annual leave since the pandemic started. 38% were contemplating leaving the profession, as in to stop being a practicing clinician. 25% were considering changing their future career, either changing specialty or having fewer clinical responsibilities. were concerned about the impact of the pandemic on their career development or training. And not surprisingly, 76% were worried about international fellowship opportunities because they certainly aren't happening. But look, this is a very large survey. Craig, you've done a lot of work in Victoria on workforce, really on numbers though, not on how this translates into fatigue or burnout. But there's certainly a lot of concern. I hear form an orderly queue behind the nursing staff who I suspect are going to leave in droves and we already have an ageing workforce in nursing and I think they're exhausted and there's going to be a real problem next year if we do get through this and out the other side. Yes, it's going to be a real problem. 
So the ripple effects of this pandemic will be felt for a long time. But anyway, can we leave on a happy note? We mentioned the C word again. Yes, we did. Look, at the same time, I did want to say that the estimates for the number of cancer cases in Europe is going up and up as well. So that's that's not a happy note. Okay, we need a happy note. The happy note is, Craig. Yes. It's only three days post-ESMO and we've done both of our post-ESMO OJCs. That's pretty cool. Woohoo. So let's hope people enjoy them and download them. Fantastic. So, Hans, have you got any short practice-changing bites? One sentence, unlike Craig, who goes on and on. You can't tell the difference, can you? As you know, I can be very concise. So I have actually two and they will go very quickly. So in the perfect paper GI session, the non-collector ones, there was a highlight about CAR-Ts targeting clotting 18.2. And we heard about this before at ASCO. I don't remember if it was this year or previous year. But again, there is encouraging results because there was about 50, so 5-0% response rate in heavily pretreated gastric cancer patients. And as you know, clotting 18.2 is especially there in diffuse type. So we need some new drugs there. So I think very promising for the future. The second one is also in let's say quite a rare tumor, but neuroendocrine carcinomas. As you know, they resemble small cell lung cancer. And there was a study treating where they treated with nivolumab plus ipilimumab, and the overall response rate at eight weeks was 7% with nivo and 14.9% with the combo. So the trial was positive. But again, the PFS 1.8 versus 1.9, the OS 7.2 with nivo and even lower with Nevo plus EP. So the question is a little bit, should we combine these expensive drugs in a very deadly disease? Yes. I don't know that that's a practice changing going forward. I think that might have set us back a bit. Yeah. I'm just thinking about global disparity and if we're moving towards CAR T cells as standard of care. I think Nevo plus EP is more expensive than CAR T's. So once again... The Snappy Snappy team has delivered an exciting, amazing analysis and also you've been listening to our podcast as well. So it's goodbye to you, Hans, and goodbye to you, Craig, and thank you to you, Rach. Bye, everyone. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks to all the early birds out there. Well done. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.